You're listening to For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. And welcome back to another episode of For the Record with Tess Heard. I'm Tess Heard, and this is For the Record. First and foremost, I want to apologize for the delay in this episode. I know that I posted on the Facebook page that I was having some vision problems, and that was the reason and delay. Um, I have type 1 diabetes, and um, one of the complications of that is diabetic eye disease or diabetic retinopathy, and I have that. And because of the retinopathy, I have these teeny tiny little blood vessels that grow on the back of my eyes. And sometimes those blood vessels like to rupture and fill the back of my eyes with blood. And it just so happened that both of my eyes decided to have those little blood vessels rupture in them at the same time. So for the majority of the past week, I have not been able to see whatsoever. I did go and get injections in both of my eyes on Wednesday and things are improving. So I'm just now getting to where I can see well enough to do a little bit more research, get my script kind of polished and put together, and actually record this episode. So I really do just want to thank you all for your patience and your understanding, and also I want to give a really, really, really big shout out to my husband. He helped me last night to find more information on this case and help me to get set up to where I could record. I was kind of hoping that he would sit in and record with me, but he said that he didn't want to take anything away from the podcast and he didn't want to take anything away from me in doing this, which I think is ridiculous. I mean, he would add to it and not take anything away from it. But I do think it's sweet that he really just wants me to be able to do it and do it on my own. Um, And he supports me with it. So major shout out to my hubby. I love you very much. And thank you for everything that you do for me when I can and can't see. So I also want to give a couple of corrections from last week's episode about the Titan submersible. So I know that I said that the mothership, captainship, whatever you want to call it, that was on the ocean surface was called the Port de Prince. I don't know if maybe last week my ears weren't working, but... I quickly realized after posting that episode that the mothership, as I am still referring to it, is called the Polar Prince. I don't know how I got that wrong, but 
I did, and I just wanted to give that correction. I also said that the game system controller that was being used to control the Titan was a PlayStation 3 controller. That was also incorrect. It was a Logitech G F710 controller. My husband pointed that out to me after I had posted the episode, and I was like, well, it looked like a PlayStation 3 controller to me. But he assured me that's it, it was the Logitech. So just want to get that out there. Um, I also want to make it known that there is a TikTok that has been posted. It has gone all around social media. The Pascal Show even did a full episode on it. Um, and it is a transcript of the communication between the Polar Prince and the Titan during the descent on June 18th. This has not been confirmed. It is not a confirmed transcript. From what I could tell, it looked like the person in the TikTok was showing it off of their cell phone, which I know that that doesn't mean that it's not right, but it looked like a regular text message exchange from what I could tell. Again, my eyes have been messed up, so I don't know for sure. But I just want to let you guys know that that is floating around and not to take it as gospel because it has not been verified. The Polar Prince, Ocean Gate, no one has come out and said, yes, this is our exchange. If that does become verified, if someone does confirm that, then we know a little bit more what happened. If not, then that is a very cruel, horrendous thing to do. To put that out there and say that it was the transcription of the communications between the two. So, like I said, don't take it as gospel. Just be aware that as of today, it has not been verified. Now, with all of that being said, we can get into today's episode. Are you guys ready to dig in with me? Let's do it. When it comes to true crime, you hear a lot of stories about home invasions, back alley attacks, and family members turning on one another. Over the years, we've seen more and more mass murders, though, from tragic school shootings to massive public bombings to concerts and movie theaters being attacked with a storm of bullets and chaos. The public as a whole has been prey to violence since the beginning of time, and it's always the innocent who are taken when this violence occurs. Whether that be because the culprit has a mental illness or is just plain evil, the fact remains that no one is ever truly safe from someone who has murder on the mind. And this week, we're discussing a case that left seven innocent people dead because of one man's hunger for revenge. This is the case of Paul Dennis Reed Jr., the fast food killer. 
It was the 1990s in the city of Nashville, Tennessee. Music City, Nash Vegas, the music capital of the world. It has a lot of names. People from all over the country flocked to Music City for one reason and one reason alone. They wanted to become the next country music star. People like Dirk Bentley, Dolly Parton, Loretta Lynn, and as much as I hate her, even Taylor Swift all got their starts in the southern city of lights. And just like all the people before him, Paul Dennis Reed Jr. wanted to come to Nashville and make a name for himself. So, Paul Dennis Reed was born in Richland Hills, Texas, which is an outskirt suburb of Fort Worth. His, he was born on November 12th, 1957. His father was a private investigator who on the side also repossessed vehicles. His father was also reported to be a pretty severe alcoholic. There really isn't much information about his mother, but Reed's parents divorced when he was only about three years old, and his father ended up getting custody of Reed and one of his older sisters. His entire childhood was a collection of just instability, and uncertainty. According to SerialKillerCalendar.com, the link will be in the description of this episode, young Paul Reed spent a lot of time with his paternal grandmother. And it was reported that he essentially terrorized her. He put thumbtacks in her food, would spray her down with a water hose. He barricaded in her bedroom and wouldn't let her out. And then at one point, he even tried to set her bed on fire while she was asleep. So he definitely had some issues, even from a young age. And by the time he was just eight years old, Reed was out of control. He ultimately turned over to, he was ultimately turned over to a home for boys And by the time he was a teenager, neither of his parents wanted him around. When he was 16, he attempted to sexually assault both his mother and his older sisters. So at this point in time, Reed's mother kicked him out. And I really don't blame her for that. So after being kicked out of his mother's house, he went back to live with his father, but then he attempted to sexually assault his other sister, and he was kicked out of his father's house. And then shortly after that, he was arrested for stealing a car. Paul received three years of probation, but he wasn't scared straight or, you know, worried about not doing crime again. 
he was very much about having a life of crime and he stuck with it. He had quite the record ranging from auto theft to check fraud all the way down to robberies. It wouldn't be until April of 1994, though, that Reed would really experience what it was like to have to answer for his crimes. In the previous year, 1983, Reed had been caught and charged with aggravated armed robbery of a Houston steakhouse on or in April of 1984, Reed was sentenced to 20 years for that and only ended up serving seven years of that sentence. According to a Crime Pod episode about this case, Reed was mostly released because of prison overpopulation, but I don't know how true that is. Despite having multiple criminal justice professionals tell lawyers and the judge that Reed was a danger to society and that if he was released, he would end up committing these kinds of crimes again or worse, he was still released in 1990. Within a year of being out of prison, Reed had shown potential to turning his life around. He had decided to give actually working a chance instead of just robbing places for his money. And he ended up getting a job as a truck driver in Fort Worth. He ended up getting into a terrible accident, though, while as a truck driver. And ended up receiving somewhere around $25,000 in a workman's comp settlement. Now, it's what Reed did with this money that really sets the story in motion. Reed decided that he needed to get plastic surgery. Yeah. Plastic surgery. He wanted to get some dental work done. He ended up getting a skin peel. He had his ears pinned back. He just really wanted to look the absolute best he could because his new dream was to become the next big country music star. Along with the 
cosmetic work that he got done. Reed paid for music lessons, voice lessons, all that stuff. And he decided that the next best thing that he could do would be to move to Nashville, Tennessee, where all the other country stars got their start from. So in September of 1999, he set on his way to Nashville, cowboy hat and cowboy boots ready to go and was ready to embark on this new adventure. He even had a stage name picked out for himself. Justin Parks, he would call himself. The next Garth Brooks. Now, country music isn't my thing. It's, it's really not. Um, despite being born and raised in Tennessee and spending a lot of time in Nashville, I am not your typical Southern Belle country girl, and I'm totally okay with that. But no one can really compete with Garth Brooks. I mean, I'm not even a huge fan, and I can say that. So, you know, Mr. Reed here probably had his, his expectations set just, uh, just a little bit too high. So, when Reed arrived in Nashville... He really expected to just be flocked with record deals and talent agents just, you know, throwing contracts at him. But Reed would quickly realize that his dreams were probably just not going to happen. While his heart was in it 100%, his actual talent just was not up to par. And within just a few short weeks, Reed found himself working as a dishwasher slash cook at the local Shoney's restaurant. If you don't know what a Shoney's restaurant is, it is a sit-down restaurant. They have a buffet. They have, like, a pretty decent menu. They're really known for their big boy burgers. And... If you don't have a Shoney's near you, then you may have a big boy restaurant near you. They're the same restaurant, just a different name. Kind of like Hardee's and Carl's Jr. Same thing, different name. The life of a restaurant worker, though, was less than what Reed had hoped for. And he began to ponder just how much better off he would be if he went back to his previous life of crime. The money was better, and he knew that he could easily start off by robbing the very restaurant he worked at if he just timed it right. Now, I have read differing things from differing sources, saying that Reed's boss at Shoney's fired him because he overheard Reed telling another co-worker his plan to rob the restaurant and asking if he wanted to join in on it. 
and that Reed was fired because he lost his temper and threw a dish at another employee. Either way, by 1997, Reed was let go from his position at Shoney's, igniting a spark that would soon grow into a full-fledged fire of heated rage. It was on February 16, 1997. Reed happened upon another restaurant owned at the time by the same company as Shoney's. It was early in the morning before the restaurant opened, but the two opening employees, 16-year-old Sarah Jackson and 25-year-old Steve Hampton, were there preparing for their opening shifts. Steve was the manager of the Captain D's and had worked his way up from part-time employee at only 15 years old to store manager. Steve was married to his wife and together they had three beautiful children. Sarah was only 16 at the time. She was a high school student who, by all accounts, was a golden child. She got amazing grades, was involved in several different activities and organizations, and she had only been working at the restaurant for somewhere around nine months. It was also reported that Sarah's mother really had to think hard about letting her get a part-time job because she didn't want any of her focus to be taken away from her schooling and her academics. When both Steve and Sarah got to work that fateful morning, neither of them could have possibly ever expected what would happen. Before the store opened, a man came to the door and began knocking. Thinking it was probably just an impatient customer, Steve opened the door to let the man know that the store wouldn't be open until 10 a.m. Shortly after Steve opened the door, though, Reed barged in and immediately pulled out his firearm, demanding Steve take him to the store's safe. Once the safe was emptied, he took Steve and Sarah into the walk-in freezer and demanded they lay face down on the floor. Reed then proceeded to tie them up and then shoot them in the back of the head. First, Reed shot Steve. Once. Twice three times. He then turned to Sarah, who he shot twice at close range, before going into the office and pulling the security tapes. While in the office, however, Reed heard a noise coming from the freezer and went to see what was going on. Sarah had managed to survive the first round of bullets and was trying to get herself up off the floor, either to escape or call 911, I would assume. Reed then shot Sarah two more times and then fled the scene, making sure the security tapes were tucked away on his person. At around 10 a.m., another employee arrived at the Captain D's for his shift, but when he went to open the door, it was still locked. Knowing this was odd, Michael Butterworth went to the back of the building to try another door. To his dismay, this door, too, was locked. Not knowing exactly what to do, he caught a ride with someone and went to another business nearby to use their phones. This was the 90s, and cell phones just weren't a prominent staple in everyone's hands or back pockets. So he had to go to another physical location to make a phone call. Michael called the Captain D's first, thinking maybe for some reason Steve had just forgotten to unlock the doors. When he didn't get an answer, though, he called the police to see if they could figure out what was going on. When the police showed up and got into the building, they were beyond shocked by the scene that they had walked in on. Both Steve and Sarah were on the floor, their hands and feet bound, dead from gunshot wounds. 
Despite the state of the restaurant, though, there was very little evidence left behind by Reed. And since he took the security tapes, there was nothing to show who the culprit was. Witnesses would say that before the robbery took place, they saw a man outside the restaurant that they didn't recognize talking to Steve through the door. They gave a brief description of the man, but no one knew who he was. The police continued to investigate, but there just wasn't enough evidence or identifiers to name a suspect. The only thing that they did find was a partial fingerprint on Steve's library card, which was found several blocks away on the side of the road. Reed had made out with the wallet of the victims as well as the money from the cash register and the safe. Reed would use the money from the Captain D's to make a down payment on a new car just a few days later. Nothing new would come to light though until March 23rd, 1997. It was a late night at the McDonald's on Lebanon Road in Hermitage, Tennessee, a suburb of Nashville. I'm getting tongue-tied. Ronald Santiago, 27, was the closing manager of the McDonald's. Also working that night were 23-year-old Robert Sewell, 30-year-old Jose Gonzalez, and 17-year-old Andrea Brown. After their shift, the employees clocked out and Santiago unlocked the door on the side of the building, carrying on casual conversation as they began to exit the building. Before they could all get out the door, though, a man came up to them with a gun and rallied them all back inside the building. Once inside, Reed shuffled everyone into the office before raiding the safe. He then took the employees to a storage room where the dry food products were kept. Once in the storage room, Reed began shooting the victims one at a time. Right as Reed turned the gun on Gonzalez, though, his gun misfired, allowing Gonzalez to attack and attempt to make an escape. However, Reed was not going to let this happen. He grabbed a knife and began to stab Gonzalez, leaving him with a total of 17 stab wounds. Gonzalez was smart, though, and he knew the only way he was going to get out of this alive was if he fell to the ground and played dead. Reed didn't bother to double-check either and decided to flee the scene. Once Reed was gone, Gonzalez painfully made his way to the phone and called 911. By the time EMS got there, Saul and Santiago had tragically died, but Gonzalez and Brown were still alive, although both were unresponsive. Gonzalez and Brown were both rushed to the hospital, and despite doing everything they possibly could, Andrea Brown sadly passed away. Gonzalez was touch and go, but he was alive. He would be the sole survivor of Reed's attacks. Police began to investigate the scene at the McDonald's and quickly realized that they were dealing with someone who really knew what they were doing. They found no fingerprints, but they did find $2,000 missing, mostly in coins, and six Remington 25 caliber casings. They also noticed that the way the crime was committed, the money that was stolen and the type of gunshot wounds were very similar to the ones at the Captain D's a few weeks before. When they still didn't have, while they still didn't have an identity of the man. They knew that this was likely the same person. 
Jose Gonzalez was still recovering at Vanderbilt Medical University under 24-hour surveillance. He was the only eyewitness the police could talk to, and so far, he wasn't talking. Not because he didn't want to, but because he physically couldn't. He was able to communicate mostly through some signs and symbols, but that was about all that he was able to do, and it would take several weeks before he would actually be able to speak. Eventually, he was able to manage to whisper, and with strain in his voice, trying the best he could, he finally was able to give the police a brief description of the man who had killed his co-workers and attempted to kill him. By April of 1997, there had been six deaths related to armed robberies in the Nashville area. Despite having an eyewitness, though, and a sketch of the man, police were still searching for the killer. They had yet to find him or catch him in the act, and Reed's killing spree was far from being over. A month to the day after the McDonald shooting, Reed struck again, this time in Clarksville, Tennessee, 50 miles away from Nashville. The community of Clarksville probably didn't know too much about the murders that had taken place in the weeks prior. If they did, they probably didn't pay much mind to it, as they were in a completely different town. There was no need for them to be concerned. What happened in Nashville typically stayed in Nashville. Whether it was because they were blissfully unaware or just not minded by the news, Angela Holmes and Michelle Mace were bringing their shift at the Baskin-Robbins to a close. There was only one customer in the restaurant, and when they were finished with their dessert, 21-year-old Angela walked them to the door, locking it behind her. Angela was a young married mother to one, and the manager of the establishment. Michelle Mace was just 16, who worked part-time after school and on the weekends. This was supposed to be just another ordinary night. Angela and Michelle were supposed to close the store and go about their night, going home to their families, crawling into bed, and probably sleeping in in the morning. Unfortunately, this wouldn't be the case, though. Michelle's brother, Craig, arrived a few minutes before the store closed, and Angela had seen his car in the parking lot whenever she had walked the last customer out. After about 15 minutes of waiting, though, whenever the store closed, Craig had seen no signs of Michelle. Craig called the store from his car phone, but there was no answer. Knowing something was off, Craig made his way to the front door of the ice cream parlor and was surprised to find that the door was unlocked. He went inside hoping to see his sister or Angela, but all of the lights were turned off. He called out for them, but there was nothing but silence in response. Craig went back out to his car and dialed 911. A few minutes later, police arrived and began processing the scene. They found no bodies, no blood, nothing except the top of the store safe on top of the desk in the office. $1,200 were missing, as well as the security tapes. The only other thing left behind were the women's purses. Unlike the other robberies, there were some differences with this one. The first one being no one was left dead in the restaurant. 
The purses were also left, and everything was still inside of them. But this is what really changed the game. Police were able to find three identifiable fingerprints as well as a few shoe prints. There had been no prints of any kind left behind at the other two scenes, so this was pretty big. There had obviously been some kind of foul play at hand, but police had little to no luck in finding the two young women that night, and they searched all night. It wouldn't be until the next day when a man who was walking his dog at Dunbar Cave State Park, the bodies would be discovered. The man's dog alerted him, signaling that there was a body in the lake. I don't know if this means that the dog was like a search and rescue dog, if he was out there looking for the girls, if, you know, the dog just picked up on something and alerted that there was something in the lake and he wasn't sure what it was. I couldn't really find anything to clarify that. But the dog did alert. <clears throat> Police arrived and they found the body, a woman who was wearing a Baskin Robbins apron. It was the body of Angela Holmes. A search was launched and approximately 100 feet away from Angela was the body of Michelle, who was discovered in the woods. Both of the woman, women had multiple stab wounds and their throats had been cut. They both would have suffered a slow and painful death, being left like garbage on the side of the road. Police began being dispatched to local restaurants for extra surveillance, even having some officers go undercover as fast food workers in case the killer decided to strike again. They would be armed and ready, just in case. But Reed seemed to be laying low. It would be nearly six weeks before another attempted crime would take place, and this time, the cops were going to be ready. 14 miles from the heart of Nashville, in a suburb called Jolton, 45-year-old Mitchell Roberts was at home with his family. Mitchell was the manager of the Shoney's at which Reed had previously worked at. Now, Mitchell and his family weren't expecting any company, but on this particular day, this shiny little red car would pull up in their driveway and out would come Reed. Reed walked up to the door and struck up a conversation with Mitchell. He was there to ask Mitchell to give him his job back. Mitchell told him that he couldn't give him his job back, that it just wasn't a good fit. And he walked Reed back to his car. Whenever Reed got to his car, though, he pulled out a gun and a pair of handcuffs and told Mitchell that he was going to get in the car with him. Now, 
Mitchell absolutely was not going to get in the car with him and began to run back to his front door. When he got to the front door, he pushed Reed away from him and was able to get back inside, slamming the door in Reed's face. He called out to his wife to go and get the gun, which apparently they didn't have, but it was more of a scare tactic than anything. And it worked. Reed ran back to his car, got in, and drove off. Mitchell would then call the police, and they would come and make a report. And it was also helpful that Mitchell's son was just randomly playing with the family's video camera and had caught the whole thing on tape. They had video proof of everything, which is amazing. A few minutes after the police had been there, Mitchell's phone rings. He answers, and it's Reed. He wanted to apologize. The officers decided that if they wanted to catch Reed, this would be the time to do it. Even though they didn't quite know that he was the fast food killer, it still was the perfect setup for them to catch this man who had, you know, tried to kidnap and assault Mitchell. So they kind of coaxed Mitchell into telling Reed to come back to his house so they could talk about things. And Mitchell, or Reed, bought it and made his way back. Police were on standby, and when he got out of his car, they were able to pin him down and take him directly into custody. At first, all police could do was charge Reed with assault, but at Mitchell's begging, pretty much, they decided to charge him with aggravated assault and attempt, attempted kidnapping. And so they were able to get him booked into the prison to where he couldn't make bail. Since he was in prison, they decided to look into him a little bit further and really find out who this man was. At first, they really couldn't find anything out about him because Reed had given them a fake birthday, which, when they searched in their systems, wouldn't allow them to find anything on him. It would take a little bit more digging to finally realize who Reed actually was. Mitchell stated that he had a really, really strong feeling that Reed was the fast food killer and urged the police to keep looking into him. So after they had gotten Reed's fingerprints, they decided to compare it to the partial fingerprint that was found on Steve's library card 
and then to compare it to the fingerprints that were found at the Baskin Robbins. Of course, it was a match. They were able to search Reed's car and they found a pair of white tennis shoes that had some source of DNA that matched Angela and Michelle from Baskin Robbins. And there were also fibers from the back seat of his car that matched fibers found on the clothing of Michelle and Angela. In the trunk of Reed's car, there were four one-gallon bottles that were full of coins, which is what Reed had mostly taken from the restaurants. When questioned about these robberies and murders, Reed denied that he had anything to do with them, but there was an overwhelming amount of evidence from the DNA found on his shoes, the fingerprints, the shoes also matched the shoe prints found at the Baskin Robbins, and the fibers in the car matching the ones on the young women from Baskin Robbins. It would take 13 months for prosecution and defense to get their cases ready and present them to the judge. The prosecution presented their witnesses and really the only one that they had was Jose Gonzalez, the one person who had survived all of the murders. And because he had survived, because he had seen Reed's face, he was able to identify him, not just in court, but they had also shown him, while he was still in the hospital, somewhere around 300 photos. And he was able to pick out Reed out of all of those. The defense would say that Reed had suffered head injuries throughout his life. And that would essentially leave him with a quote-unquote broken brain. They said that because of this, he really didn't know what he was doing and would claim that he had chronic paranoia, or I'm sorry, chronic paranoid schizophrenia, and a severe case of psychosis. I don't know how true that is, but that's what the defense claimed. They also really wanted to 
say that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, they really wanted to say that Reed had many mental deficits and that, you know, that influenced his ability to know what was right and wrong and that he couldn't really be held accountable for what he had done. But in the end, Reed was convicted for seven counts of murder, one of attempted murder, and he was sentenced to death. Now, this is uh, the death penalty is something that I really struggle with. I have a lot of personal opinions about it. I don't believe that we have, we should have the right to say who lives and who dies. I don't think that we should essentially play God. I do think that some people deserve to die. I do think that some people should not be allowed to live. And this is one of those cases. I don't think that Paul Dennis Reed should have gotten off scot-free. But I also think that, you know, maybe a life of having to live with his consequences maybe would have been a better choice. On the same coin, though, anyone who is sentenced to death is on death row, usually for an extended period of time. So it's not like they're sentenced to death and then the next day they're executed. I think maybe in that time they do have the chance to, you know, revel in what they've done and maybe they can have some remorse and have some regret but I don't know it's it's a touchy subject so in this case Reed actually would not end up being executed he ended up passing away on November 1st, 2016. Not 2016. November 1st, 2013. <laughs> oh, excuse me. My throat is getting dry. 2013 at 5.55 p.m. due to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease in pneumonia. So we can see that Reed had issues from the get-go. We can see that. You know, everything that he went through with his parents, everything that he went through with his sisters, everything that he did to his grandmother. There was even a report that uh, True Crime All the Time talked about. Um, Reed had even killed his grandmother's dog. And, you know, there's this, like, perfect 
set of circumstances. I can't remember what it's called now. Um, Murder with My Husband has talked about it on several of their episodes. But basically you have these set of characteristics that start showing up in someone's life at a very young age that alludes to them potentially being a psychopath or a serial killer as they get older. And animal cruelty is one of them. That's not to say that everybody who abuses and hurts an animal is going to be a serial killer, but those people do deserve to be, you know, at least punched in the face, if nothing else. So it's possible that Reed had shown other types or other characteristics that would give a sign that he was going to be this cruel killer. There's just not anything that I've been able to find that supports that there were those other things. In an episode of Crime Pod, which I will have that linked in the description so you can check it out, there was a robbery and murder that took place in Texas years before Reed made it to Nashville. And it had the same, it kind of had the same MO. The, he waited until close. He had an accomplice in this one, apparently. So they waited until close at this bowling alley. And then when they were closed, they went and knocked on the door. And whenever the manager opened the door, they rushed in and made everybody lay down on the floor, shot them all execution style, and then robbed the place. And someone else was actually charged with that crime. But a victim of that robbery survived and was able to give a description of the man who did it. And the description fit Reed. Reed was never charged with that crime. You know, the... the person who was charged he was also sentenced to death and he was ultimately executed if i remember correctly so there is the possibility that they got the wrong person and the person who was charged with it may have truly been an innocent man and for that particular crime reed got off scot-free and that's just horrible to think about. To think that someone could do something like that and someone else be charged for it. And I think that nowadays it's probably not as likely to happen 
because we have such advances in technology and DNA and blood and, you know, security cameras are, are, I would assume security cameras are harder to erase, but I really don't know. So, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's weird to think about and it sucks if the person who was charged with that crime was innocent or at least didn't commit that particular crime. And there really are a lot of details to this case. And I highly, highly, highly recommend, you know, going and checking out the sources that I'll have linked and go listen to the episodes of the other podcasts that have covered this. Because, I mean, it's really just a... It's kind of crazy and... To think that, you know, I was just a kid whenever this happened, but I never knew about this until just a few weeks ago whenever I was researching stuff that has happened in Tennessee. I never knew that this person did this in my home state, in a town where I have spent, you know the majority of my life going to. So it was really hard. It, it was, it was really hard to read about this stuff and think about the people whose lives were lost and their families and what they went through and how tragic it was, especially, I mean, all of them were tragic, but you know, one of these girls was 17 and one of them was just 16. They had their whole lives left and all of them were young. Every single one of them were young. They were, they were children. They were parents. They were brothers and sisters, moms and dads. They had grandparents and aunts and uncles who loved them. And they were taken away all because of Reed's hunger for revenge because he got fired from his job at Shoney's. At least that's what we're told. If he had committed the crime in Texas at the bowling alley, then maybe he just had a hunger for blood. He'll Never really know, will we? But that is going to be it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. And thank you again for your patience and understanding in the delay of this episode. Please check out all of the links in the description for more information on Reed and these crimes. Um... Go ahead and subscribe if you haven't already subscribed and feel free to leave me a five-star review because you know that really helps a girl out. I want to give another major shout out to my wonderful husband for all of his help this past week. It has been amazing just having that love and support and a helping hand when you lose your vision even if it's just for a short period of time. 
you take for granted that you have the ability to see. And whenever you lose that ability, your world feels so small. Because you feel like you literally can't do anything on your own. But I'm very, very blessed to have such an amazing support system and people in my life who are willing to help me out, but still help me have my independence the best that I can. So thank you guys for all of your help. Thank you everyone for listening. And we will see you all next week. And so the record will reflect. I always get that wrong. It's not, and so the record will reflect. And, ugh, my brain is not working. The record will so reflect. See you guys next week.